Hello, friends. Welcome back to For Fin Tech's Sake. My name is Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director of Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, but most of all, your unqualified host. Woo! Other than our last episode with Don, it's been a minute, folks. I've missed you all. Love seeing many of you in New York for New York FinTech Week recently. Shouts to the man, John Zanoff, and team. It's a bonkos time, everybody. We got Money 2020 World Tour happening all over the world. Money 2020 Europe coming up in Amsterdam in early June. And the one, the only, not that I'm biased, Money 2020 USA happening in Las Vegas in October. It's sneaking up. Believe me, I'm not counting the weeks or anything. And... I've been working with some good friends on some exciting new news. Before we get into this week's episode, the man, the legend, one of the most entertaining personalities in this space, Dmitry Dadimov, I'm damn excited to tell you about this season's sponsor of her fintech sake, Neuro ID. Friends, we're welcoming a new sponsor, but we're really welcoming a new friend. Whatever you want to call them, Neuro ID. Jack Alton, the CEO, came on the show a while back. Take a look at the show notes for a link to our chat. As you know, I don't just let anyone sponsor for for fintech's sake. They're knocking down the doors. They want to give me the money. But I say no, because ethics. I might have low standards in some ways, but not when it comes to recommending anything to founders. It has been a company that I believed in for a long time and have either actively recommended or used and can't say I've used NeuroID, but I do actively recommend it to many founders. I should say though that I am not an investor, although I do wish I had met Jack a bit earlier and that that disclosure actually said I am an investor. Having sat on the bank side and the fintech side of this crazy world, I've personally felt the pain of the fraud, both in terms of the usual fraudulent actors causing losses, but also overly active fraud controls that deny folks who should absolutely be approved for an account or a loan or whatever the product might be. All right, so why does any of this matter? Because quietly, fraud is killing our industry. We don't talk about it very much, but it's bad for everybody. <laughs> NeuroIDEA is finally bringing behavioral data into the mix. They think Think about it basically as bringing body language into the digital world. Someone fidgeting in their chair is like someone taking too long to fill out their social security number. Or maybe they're switching tabs like crazy. The digital world has tells the same way the real world does. And NeuroID is that person at the casino sitting in the room watching the monitors, making sure no nefarious business is going on. As most fintech nerds know, fraud is not a single player game. It's an intricate web. It's a fraud ring, not just a fraud stir. That's why threatening our industry that's what is threatening our industry. Neuroidea is pushing pushing hard to solve this problem alongside the myriad of others in the world of digital identity. So, folks, go to neuroid.com backslash FFS to sign up to learn more and schedule a demo. And now, finally, sorry, I don't usually do intros that long, but I'm very excited about NeuroID and I needed to tell you all of the things. Again, check the show notes. And now, without further ado, welcome my guest, Dimitri Dadimov. And where are you, by the way? There, we can try that again. <laughs> uh, I am in Lake Tahoe right now, so I'm... Uh... I'm excited to be here. It's got some fresh snow. Nice. I got some fresh snow too in Kansas City, which is uh, not quite as exciting as Lake Tahoe snow, I don't think. But lovely. How, how are the hills? <laughs> uh, non-existent. It's great. Yeah. We. Uh, <laughs> I, I. You know. I. I. To get my coffee, I have to take like a, a five percent incline, and it's a little bit sketchy. But other than that, there's really no hills in Kansas or Missouri. So that's my <laughs> life. That's my life. And were you nice. in SF? Like, were you in SF earlier this week? You've been traveling a bunch the past couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 I live in San Francisco, so I mean, that's uh, you know, it's oh, like a three, four hour drive okay. away. So, but San Francisco's home. 
I've been really appreciating your Twitter recently, um, especially like since we had our first prep call a while back and I started like paying attention more to the things you tweet. Uh, you you have like some some musky vibes, uh, not in a smelly way, but in an Elon way, like the <laughs> the way that you handle like Twitter. That, that I really appreciate it is a compliment, dude. It's very it's for a payments oriented CEO that was born in Russia, moved to Tel Aviv like you are a, yeah, or moved to Israel. I should say you are a. Uh, you're unique when it comes to your Twitter presence. So I appreciate that about you, Thank you. which let's Thank get you. into this. So Dimitri, welcome to for fintech sake. Uh, we've talked about breakfast. We've talked about Hills. Now let's talk about fintech and let's talk about you. So <laughs> where are it. you, where are you from? Give me, give me your background and uh, just kind of like how you, how you got to the position that you're in today. Yeah. So super quick background. I was born in Russia. My family moved to Israel when I was five years old. Uh, Went to elementary school in Israel, moved to Seattle when I was 13. My dad was at Microsoft and we moved to Redmond, Washington. Um, went to you know junior high and high school in, in Redmond and then came down to the Bay Area for college and more or less been, been in the Bay Area since. And um, eventually through a bunch of early stage startup uh, kind of trips ended up uh, with uh, kind of facing a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve in modern treasury today and, and, and you know, co-founded, co-founded the company in 2018. I love it. What is it? I mean, this is not what I was planning to ask you, but I'm truly curious. What is it like to be a Russian born individual that has the experiences that you have technologically over the past couple of weeks? Like, has that been a weird emotional experience or like, were you so long, so young when you left that it doesn't even really resonate? I was really young when I left, so I don't have a ton of like very super personal kind of connections, but a lot of the places that have been sort of, you know, under attack um, in Ukraine and so on have been places that I kind of grew up hearing about. Both my grandparents on my dad's side uh, were from Ukraine originally, and during World War II, they sort of went to Russia and then they joined kind of the Red Army and went all the way to, you know, Berlin and things like that. And so hearing a lot of those places under attack, I think, especially by, you know, from from the Russian side is is really kind of um, bizarre and ironic and, and, uh, and terrible. Yeah. I mean, your, your parents were doing like CS back then. Right. You, and they, they, I think you told me a story about your dad, like losing the if key and maybe we can transition back into something a little more jovial. <laughs> um, but it's, it sounds like there's a, there's like a genetic history of uh, deep technology knowledge and like kind of coming from that side of things. Yeah, well, the funny thing is it didn't really pass down in the sense that they kind of try to force feed me a little bit of CS because that's something that they love. And once, you know, I think as a lot of kids, once you get forced at something, you don't really like it. So by the time I was sort of in high school and, you know, going to college, the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, major in, in CS or something like that. Um, so, but yeah, they, um, you know, both my parents were, you know, are computer scientists and they studied it like pretty early, not, wouldn't, wouldn't quite call it the dawn of the, you know, computer age, but sure. uh, it was like, you know, 20 years after the dawn and in the Soviet Union. So it was like pretty, pretty, pretty close to, you know, kind of like very, very uh, early technology. And so, yeah, the story that you kind of talked about, I don't know if it was my dad or not, somebody, somebody in their kind of uh, college class lost like a physical key because they had sort of this computer where they, they had the way, the way at least I heard the story was there was a hundred like key kind of holes and there was, you'd get it as a briefcase with all the commands and so you kind of wrote it out on a piece of paper and then you went and you kind of like assembled it like Ikea style and you went and you said like, if then print beep, like whatever it is, the things that, that people are doing. Um, <laughs> I like that you added beep. Think, you know, it's like, you know, if you have an extra, extra line in your, your program, you might as well just add it there for, for fun. Anyway, I like it, it was one of those things where you don't, you don't, you know, it's like, we're so far away from that. Um, you know, it's kind of wild that that was like actually something that, how people kind of worked with computers back at a certain point. That was kind of the UI UX of like what that actually looked like. Yeah. What, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up since your parents like tried to tried to technology you and you were like, nah, what did you, what did you think you wanted to be? Well, so we moved to Seattle and, you know, for me, one of the things that I just really loved about the Pacific Northwest is all the outdoors, kind of access to the outdoors there. There's just amazing, yeah. you know, mountains and islands and forests and all that sort of thing. So I was kind of just trying to, um, you know, get out as much as I can and do kind of backpacking trips and go camping and go skiing. And my, my first job actually was a ski instructor for five-year-olds, um, which is okay. sort of, um, you learn, you learn a lot about how to, you know, run a company when you handle <laughs> 
15, 15 freezing cold five-year-olds. <laughs> if you can handle that, there's a lot of other things that, that you can take that are thrown at you. But anyway, like I just, I like, I love the outdoors. I, I really care a lot about, um, still do care a lot about the environment and climate change. And so when I went to college, I ended up studying um, energy science and technology and kind of just really focusing on um, kind of how to, how to fix some of the climate mess. Right? And so, um, yeah, my, I mean, my parents were definitely ahead of their time uh, focusing on computer science, but it did not, despite their best efforts or maybe because of their best efforts, it did not yeah. translate. I mean, you circled back. It's not like you don't know what an API is or anything now. I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's come full circle. Yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so take me from, from your time at Stanford. I mean, you, you weren't studying kind of what you've gotten into. So how did you kind of bridge the gap into modern treasury? Like, how did you get to that? Well, so the thing that I was very interested in always was um, startups and entrepreneurship and being at Stanford, you're really in the kind of heart of Silicon Valley. And these days it's a little bit more of a kind of a concept that's in the cloud, but at the time, you yeah. know, certainly like 10, 15 years ago, even three years ago, maybe that was a very physical sort of place. And you could actually yeah. go and meet a lot of people um, in and around kind of campus and Palo Alto and San Francisco and stuff like that. So um, I ended up getting involved with a number of kind of early stage companies. And one of them was Lending Home, which is an online mortgage company. And I joined that as a product manager. Um, I was kind of running the investor side of the marketplace and that experience um as we scaled that up you know the company went to i don't know 300 employees or something like that we were kind of focused on uh providing the best financing for fix and flip mortgages so okay. kind of post post 2008 the word mortgage became like this very loaded term and so you mm -hmm. went to a bank and you said you wanted a mortgage for let's say you and i are doing a uh renovating a property in in kind of in kansas city or something like that you know we're trying to buy it put some funds into it, renovate it, and then sell it in, um, you know, whatever, 12 months. And that that was very different from the word mortgage, which meant 47 days of underwriting and a lot of paperwork. And if you're trying to do this like 20 times a year, it would be very operationally heavy. So that was kind of the niche that Lending Home stepped into and said, hey, we, we can actually provide like much better, faster financing for this. Um, and as we were kind of producing these loans, you know, we're turning around and sort of selling them to institutional investors, retail yeah. investors, the a number, number of transactions that are kind of flying around, like wires going out to the borrower to actually fund the mortgage, ACH debits to collect that every month. Um, the and no web hooks, like, <laughs> no web hooks, just no, fear. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, I think the, the thing that really broke it was the kind of the retail piece, right? So we built kind of this retail experience. Uh, we jokingly called it ugly Airbnb because you'd log in and you'd see all this, <laughs> all these properties and instead of them being the best possible photo and just like this beautiful yeah. place to, to the track to stay, it's like, you know, here's some water damage. Like, look, you should invest in it. Like it's so easy to replace, <laughs> you know, whatever. Lean in, uh, lean anyway. into the shittiness to make it, make it seem like a better investment. Well, that's, that's the, that's the value investing, like, right? Like that's what you're getting um, sort of from it. So you basically get into um, watching these kind of properties kind of fly off the shelves, if you will. And then the fractional piece and then the investments and so on. Um, each one ends up in a, in, a, in a book transfer or an investment or an ACH debit or something. And then, you know, it's an opportunity to, for a payment to fail, for something to get messed up, things like that. So anyway, we, um, we ended up spending a lot of time on the payment ops problem. And that sort of led us to, go, huh, I wonder, I wonder how other people do this and turn out not a lot better. And so we did yeah. end up starting Modern Treasury out of that. Yeah. So bef before we jump into Modern Treasury, because that makes a lot of sense as a bridging of the gap, I spent two years in a mortgage bank here in Kansas City, and it was one of the more fascinating, like I spent basically no time working on mortgage, but I spent most of my time asking about it because I was just so fascinated by the subject. Was there anything like as you were leaving or th that's still in your head, that's like stuck in your craw in terms of like problems that you want to solve with the mortgage market that you haven't with modern treasury? Oh, that's such an interesting question. <clears throat> well, you know, I think the one of the big learnings for me out of that experience is if you think about most fintech companies that are lending companies, I should say. Um, sure. And I think it's true for a lot of banks as well. What they're what they really are at their core are sort of risk and marketing organizations. Yes. So what I mean by that is they try to figure out some um, 
some area to focus in, some some segment that they think uh, they understand. Hopefully, they do understand it. But <laughs> they build they build they build a kind of a view of the world that allows them to underwrite and to provide loans and to understand and to find investors for and so on a particular type of um, a particular type of uh, borrower. And uh, they are not like product and technology companies in some ways, and it's hard for them to invest in that in a big way. Yeah. So one of the learnings for me, and I think this is this is one of these things that, you know, somewhat applies to what we're doing now, but I think it's, you have to figure out how to be able to sort of do the best kind of marketing job and attract all those folks in, the, in that segment while also providing a great product experience. And that's a really hard thing to do at the same time. Like those are two pretty different skills and organizations don't necessarily have, um, the ability to sort of be best in class at everything. I mean, it's just true for individuals as well. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, the biggest learning for me was just really like fi- figure something you're the best at and go be the best at that. Yeah. Don't try to sort of like kind of buy, don't build everything, like buy what, what you can. Um, and then just, and so that's, that's kind of allowed us to move a lot faster, I think at MT, but it's something that I think is just like a more general kind of change in how, uh, I don't know. It's like specialization of labor or something. <laughs> oh, it's all the totally. You basically have a lot of these companies that are popping up that are doing these things that you'd say, oh, well, that's kind of a narrow thing. Like how big can that be? And it's like, the answer is, well, it can be really big because everybody's doing it not very well and kind of with, with a very small amount of their effort. But if it was there, it was easy and you wouldn't think about it. That's kind of the magic of, you know, software or what have you is you can just kind of copy paste it across a lot of different companies, a lot of different use cases. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, it's like watching the re watching the unbundling, right. And then watching the rebundling happen. It's funny how it's happening in FinTech and happening on the technology side, but I still think like community banks and lenders to your point, like it almost shouldn't to some degree, like figure out a way to pull in the deposits and whatever to be able to lend. But other than that, like, like MBKC was a good example where we were what a 900, 800, $900 million bank in terms of assets, but we did two, two and a half billion dollars a year in mortgages. And it was all residential. It was across all 50 States. And that was like the only, like that was what the bank did, you know? And there's a certain amount of like in 2008, that was an issue Uh, in 2009, that was an issue. But in 2019, it was like the biggest year in the history of the bank, right? It was unbelievable. The revenue that was coming in sort of thing. And it was like, if they would have gotten into auto or gotten into this or gotten into that, I don't think, I don't think that would exist. And also it's just like being a five-star rated anything on nerd wallet seems to be worth its weight in gold these days, which is hilarious to me. It's so wild what that's all become. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But it's sort of like, you just like be, be the best, whatever it is you can be. And then, you know, the world comes to you if, if that's the case. I'm going to, I'm going to quote you on that. Be, be the best, whatever you can, you can be and then the world will come to you. If that's the case, <laughs> yeah, <there you laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so the, the question that I want to ask to bridge the gap into modern treasury, how did you come up with the name? Because how depressing of a world do we live in where you had to just dis- like out of go out of your way to provide the fact that it was modern? Like, has that, was that a big discussion? How did you come to that decision? So I have a funny story for you on that one. Um, so we are actually originally called it Turnkey Treasury, and that oh, was the okay. name under that was the name under which we applied uh, to Y Combinator, and we hadn't we hadn't yet um, uh, we hadn't yet started the company legally, but that was kind of the name that we applied under, and that was kind of how we talked about it. And you know, YC has a lot of these different um, kind of traditions. One of them is you you refer to the founders as the name of the company. So it's like the Airbnbs, the stripes, the, you know, whatever. And I like, did not know that. That's it's like, this is the turkeys. Huh. We're like, we don't want to be the turkeys. <laughs> I don't want to be the turkeys. That's, and then people are just confused. They're just like, what is, why are you building a treasury for turkeys? Like, are you, are you, are you going to, or are you going to Turkey? Like, are you like from Turkey? Like what, you know, it just did not work at all. Like nobody heard the N, the N in Turkey just was silent and it just didn't work. And so we were like, okay, we need to, we need a better name. This was, we had gotten into YC. We were like, hadn't yet um, uh, incorporated. We we're about to incorporate. And so um, I remember Matt Marcus, my, uh, my co-founder was, was flying to Florida and he was on a plane and he was like searching instant domain search. And he texted us and he was like, Hey, my flight's about to take off, but modern is available for like seven bucks. 
uh, you should get it. <laughs> uh, and so uh, Sam and I were like, yes, do it, so, you know, sort of. And uh, and that's kind of the story behind it. And then, you know, I think it's, um, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a great name, but it was a little bit of a last minute, you know, accident. How we kind of stumbled on it. That's hilarious. Shouts to Matt Marcus, wonderful product person, wonderful technologist, also good at domain searches. Who knew? Who knew? That's right. man, that's right. man of mil- many talents, many talents, many talents. So take take me through the YC process. I mean, you all are in so many ways like perfect for YC, right? Like the the kind of enterprise oriented, providing something that a lot of them don't have or wouldn't want to build themselves. Like I it makes so much sense for you guys to go through that, but I also would imagine that building your product took some damn time. So like were you able to take advantage of the network and the actual Excel? Like tell me about that kind of that issue there with building infrastructure. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I think that you're right that it's an enterprise product that people need as they build their companies, but it's also like this very deep infrastructure thing. And I think it's a little bit harder to sell that. First of all, all infrastructure is fairly critical. Um, it's true for financial infrastructure, kind of in, in particular. Yeah. And so, generally speaking, nobody wants to buy that from a startup. Um, and so, one of the biggest challenges that we had was really just getting getting going kind of both on the bank side and on the company side and kind of engendering trust and like why should these three you know three people who apparently know something about it from their previous experience but really there's no real um obvious reason why um, yeah. would be around for for long right i mean think about it, even forget about like the elegance of the api the question is like if you built to this thing is this going to be around in however long from now, right? And if the company's yeah. not around, if they don't have a runway, if you don't have the the kind of, uh, you know, how do you know that this is really something that you should kind of bet on in a way? And so, you know, one of the hardest things for us was just kind of getting uh, getting time and attention and and so on from um, from both banks and from from potential kind of prospects and customers. Um, and so, you know, the funny thing is, we went through YC. There's this meeting every week that you have with your partners. And kind of this group of small group of companies that are, you know, generally speaking, similar to you. So like for us, it was all enterprise companies. They weren't all fintech, but they were all B2B companies. They were just kind of selling to, to companies. Yeah. And you kind of, the idea is you sort of uh, show kind of your progress and share like the biggest problem you're trying to deal with like this particular week. And, you know, the prototypical company that you can talk about is like the perfect YC company. I think, you know, there's sort of that graph that they try to kind of, you know, get companies to have. By the time demo day rolls around, that like here's growth week over week for the past ten weeks, and we were not one of those companies. We were very consistently at zero the entire time, <laughs> and so we didn't even go live until about three months after we wrapped up with YC. So we're probably month five or six into the company's life to, for us to actually go find them live. Yeah, but, you know, we were we were building to your point. We we're building some pretty like complicated heavy infrastructure. We knew what we were doing. Like we'd seen a version of it before, but also you know like. Some of the banks are working with us the first time on those systems. So we're like learning about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a wonderful experience, but I, I don't know if as a financial infrastructure company, I don't know if it's quite perfect, quote unquote, because it just takes so long to build and it takes so much trust to like get people to say, OK, yeah, I'm actually going to, you know, put put faith and future sort of yeah. like into this company. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. And especially especially with the time, as you said. So, so with the benefit of that 2020 hindsight, maybe like outside of, you know, working on the name turkeys and things of, you know, low hanging fruit like that, that, you know, is less Thanksgiving oriented. Um, what would you have done differently? Would you have done anything differently? Like, would have you, would you have incorporated earlier and started building earlier to try and have, I mean, we always want more traction earlier, I guess that's a dumb question, but any learnings that you would give to other founders thinking about that process? You know, I think looking back on it, we went really quickly. I mean, at the time it was kind of frustrating and slow, but like yeah. <laughs> when you think, when you really think back to it, we, you know, we're not four years old yet as a company. And so I think, you know, we've come a pretty long way. Um, so Jesus I think from a, as a, as a company, like in, in month six to be live with, you know, uh, it was a health insurance company called Sign of Benefits that was our customer, like very complicated to this day, like, you know, a pretty complicated use case with lots of like reserve accounts and, you know, health and dental and ben, you know benefits and things like that yeah. um that's not an easy that's not an easy first customer and we went live with um silicon valley bank was our first partner bank and so yeah I, you know i think that ultimately like 
I think the best advice I would give is if you really want to go do something, just like go do it with like all the, like there's no perfect timing and you can't like, like the fact that just like, just go, just like stop thinking yeah. about it and go. If you're, if you're yeah. convinced you want to do this. And I think this is the part that I think is for whatever reason, we had this unreasonable conviction about this product needs to exist. And it's because we were the customer, like we would have been the customer at Lending Home, like we needed it. Like, and yeah. we were like, just like mad that we had to go like deal with it and build it and deal with it yeah. for a couple of years. In uh, you know, I had this meeting every Wednesday that I just dreaded. That was every Wednesday. Me, uh, we, you know, finance and ops and capital markets and customer service and everybody could come and sort of point to bank statements and say, "What is this?" and kind of send us oh, on a man. wild goose chase. And it was one of those things where I was like, "Oh my God! Like, where are the tools to get everybody to kind of self serve those those questions?" And when I went to other companies, kind of around the Bay Area, instead of saying somebody saying, "Oh yeah, there's this tool that's like awesome. You should use this." What I got was, oh my God, I have a Thursday meeting <laughs> and I hate that, you know, at other companies. And so it was, it, you know, I think that that conviction that we got from just being like, this is insane. This needs to be fixed. We know how to fix it. And if we fix it, we think it's valuable. So it's just like, go do it. Like it was really important. It's, it's, it's really interesting what I've been thinking, I mean, I've obviously been listening, but as I've been talking about this whole thing, I, I'm, I'm even coming back to is, are the perfect, are the most successful YC companies even successful in the midst of YC, right? Like I think back about Airbnb and Stripe and a lot of these companies that we look at as like the darlings of YC, like you guys, I mean, are it's, it's weird to think that it's only been four years, man. When I think about building a product like that in six months, in my head, I was thinking like, oh man, it would have been good to start that. Like that is breakneck speeds. And I wondered the stripes, the Airbnb, like were any of them actually feeling good going through the process or did they just get put under such a pressure cooker that they were forced to come out the other end? Like with something it doesn't even seem like the ones yeah, that like I don't, I don't get a's pressure, do good you know people talk about yc is a pressure cooker i don't think it's a pressure cooker i think it's just you just get the freedom to go do whatever you do and it's kind of one of these things where um one of my like favorite authors is robert karen he talks about how like you know pa- like you know he studies political power and he talks about yeah. how like people talk about power corrupts he's like you know power reveals also like whatever you do and so like if you have the freedom to sort of do whatever uh for you know 12 weeks um I think there's an element of just like some people start like changing ideas all the time and they kind of pivot around and other people actually resort to this. Like, I don't care what happens. I'm doing this and it's going to happen no matter what. Like we were kind of in that category, Um, you know, and and it it would have been very easy to say like, Hey, it's been four weeks. It's been six weeks. Like you've gotten zero like apparent progress. Like you guys wrote a lot of code. Like nobody cares about that. Um, You had a good conversation with somebody at the bank. Like nobody knows about that. Like what is your apparent progress that has happened over the past month? And you were like, "Uh, we understand ACH a lot better. Like, you know, like, like that's not, that's a very, that's a very strange answer to some degree, but like you, but like, you know, on the path of being successful, like you, you have to understand ACH better to build this company. Like yeah. there's no way to get around it. And so, I don't know. I think, I think there's an element of um, like, just as a founder, you get all this advice and you kind of just should like not listen to a lot of it sometimes because you should just like, I mean, to the degree that you'd kind of, again, have conviction about building something that you hopefully are right about. Uh, but the, the but the reality is like, if you're going to build an infrastructure company, it just takes a year or two. Like you just can't look at it in month two and be like, you, you haven't built it yet. Sort of <laughs> like that just, that's a, that's a meaningless kind of statement about like a heavier infrastructure project. So yeah. So I think that there's an element of like, I think all kind of advisors and um, investors and family and everybody wants to see apparent progress. And it's like, well, wait a little bit like we're, we're getting yeah. there yeah yeah uh, you've given me a little bit of ptsd i'm i'm only four months out of banking as a service and this is stressing me out uh <laughs> how do you consider this is one of the things i wanted to ask you actually um and then i want to ask you about goal setting because that, that got me down a, a path how what what category of buzzwordiness do you consider modern treasury to be a part of? I'm guessing, I mean, it feels like it checks a lot of boxes, but like, do you consider yourself part of the banking as a service world, part of just like payments infrastructure? What what buzzwords do you pick to describe yourself maybe when you're talking to VCs or whatever? I think of ourselves a little bit more as like just straight up enterprise software. Like I don't think mm. of ourselves as I mean, bank banking is a service to me sounds like banking. 
and we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like we're not a bit, we have no ambition to be like a neobank or something like that. We, our ambition is, is, you know, closer to building Excel than it is to building, you know, a, yeah. a, a big bank. And so but you power, you power of, neobanks though, right? I mean, that's, sure. that's the distinction. We power neobanks, but you know, Excel powers neobanks too. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you know, so yeah. I think there's, I mean, so I think, I think of it as really as like tools and software and like sort of the, the gospel of, of, of just like software that everybody can use in different products. And I think actually when we think about new products to build, new features, kind of feature ass, things like that, a lot, one of the tests that we think about a lot is, so how does you know, how, how, how general is this ask? Like, how is it actually relevant to a ton of different companies and in different industries, or is it very niche or very specific to a certain, um, to a certain industry? So, um, you know, in that spirit of Excel, if you will, I think of it a little bit more as like, just like enterprise software, dev tooling, API tooling, uh, finance kind of software, finance kind of team phasing software, um, much more so than maybe some of the some of the buzzwords that are flying around Twitter. Well, that that gives me faith in the in the in the longevity of the company and the longevity of your mind state as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, out of that, like maybe we should get into into some use case stuff. So payments, ledgers, virtual accounts, and like we said, you you power some neo banks. You power you know class pass. You you power some fascinating companies on like the brand side of the spectrum and on you know the finance side of the spectrum. So I'd love to, maybe if we could just like grab each one of those and one from one side and one from the other, and just talk through how, how do you serve them? Like, are they pulling down payments, ledgers, virtual accounts, or are they just pulling down one? How, like, how do they handle the grocery aisle that is modern treasury kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, they, they, they can use all of the above or some of the above, whatever, whatever makes sense to them. But so to, to, maybe we can start at where we were really born, where our product was born was the literal interface between a company and a bank, right? When you think about the first API kind of set of tools that we built, it was really about how do I build an app or, or a marketplace or a FinTech app or whatever. And then there's like some, you know, some button or some action that happens and I need to initiate a money movement of some sort. It could be an ACH, it could be a wire, it could be a paper check, it could be a real-time payment, but there's this decision that the code makes and there's no invoice. It's not like an invoice came in from outside and it got approved, it's actually, the code generated it, right? So if you think mm. about um, a lot of our customers, they have some flow like that, right? Like if you're a neobank and you, I don't know, deposit funds, like when you first open the account, the first thing you probably do is you have to deposit some funds into it. Uh, and how do you do that? Like you have to basically tell the neobank to go pull money, each debit money out of some other account. We can help with that. Um, so that's kind of step one. And there's a lot of things around it because you start thinking, how do I handle the returns? Like what happens if it fails? Like what happens if, you know, how do, what if it's outside of anything that we've seen before? Like, should there be an approval? Should there be some risk rules around when it actually goes for kind of, you know, uh, approval by, by, by a human? Mm -hmm. um, how does it get reconciled? How do I get webhooks to be able to send the email that, hey, you're depositing, let's say you're an investment platform and you're depositing $10,000. Well, guess what? Like the moment the $10,000 arrives, what I really want to do as a growth PM in that company is send you an email a notification or something and be like, hey, come and actually pick like the stocks or what have you that you're, you're going to buy now. So, well, how does that happen? You need a webhook, which is basically a status update that gets proactively pushed as soon as that money arrives in the account. And depending on if it's an ACH or a wire or real-time payment or whatever, like that, those timings are different. Those, those returns are different, things like that. So... That's kind of pro product one is the literal interface between the ambition and the desires of the company and the financial kind of banking system. And then from there, if you think about other products that we have, like, for example, ledgers is sort of a step into the company a little bit. And what I mean by that is if you're ClassPass, you have a certain amount of funds that are sort of allocated to a wallet that is held by a studio like Bears Bootcamp. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like when I go there, they need to decrement my ledger. My I have a hundred dollars and move that down. Bears Bootcamp gets like the 20 bucks that they just took out of my account. No money actually maybe moves that exact moment, right? Like the money, the actual payout to the studio might happen at the end of the month. There might be some sort of like, you know, depending on the marketplace or the product or the use case, there's some sort of like payroll element to it, or there's some sort of like kind of it could be anything. But um in that sense, when you think about 
um, ledgers, it's really a financial ledger database for a company that is managing like a lot of user accounts, a lot of balances, a lot of almost anything that you log into and you see a balance. Yeah. Like there's some, somebody has to store that somewhere. And by the way, it's not just dollars, right? Like we, there's so many like interesting use cases for ledgers in video games, right? Cause you log into a video game and you have five sheep and four stone and three gold. Well, guess what? That's a ledger. <laughs> um, and you log into United airlines and they say, you have, you know, 35,000 miles in your frequent flyer mile account, that's a ledger. And so we've actually just recently launched what we call custom currencies. You can define any currency you want uh, wow. in the empty ledger system. And sometimes it can be, you know, I don't know, Ethereum with like 18 different, you know, 18 decimal points or whatever, or it can be, yeah. you know, sheep, which are generally, right. they don't have decimal points, uh, you know, so... Could yeah. This is a, a kind of out of left field, but is could that be the precursor to like infrastructure for a rewards program? For sure. That's really interesting. Can it carry on? I was just, uh, the rewards thing still yeah. blows my mind. It's so hard to build and it doesn't seem, I mean, I know there's like really big providers out there doing it, but I'm still looking for somebody that's like doing it on a cutting edge that actually allows people to be able to customize and like do cool shit and not feel totally constrained. Right. Well, it's interesting about, I mean, I think the interesting thing about uh, rewards is that there is actually, I mean, there's the kind of the database part that, um, that matters, but then, I mean, if there's actually a financial kind of outcome of it, right? Like most rewards have like you, you, you redeem a grocery coupon at, at Safeway yeah. or you, you redeem a, a travel, you know, coupon, you like actually fly somewhere. Um, yeah. Those types of things, uh, there's now there's now like some exchange of value that happens at the end after you've like accumulated all your rewards. And so yeah. there's kind of this, yeah, you zero out the ledger database, but like there's there may actually be a payment associated with that. So anyway, all this stuff is kind of tied. But the way we think about it and and really why why we're kind of going into some of these other products and, and we're working some new ones now that are that are just again, like it's not everybody that needs it who needs a payment kind of. Um, payment ops platform, like not everybody has a, let's say a loyalty program, but mm -hmm. you know, a good, a good number do. And it's, and it's, you know, we, we have, you know, hundred plus people focus on that problem that may not be able to do that inside of their own company. Um, and so we can kind of go build the best in class software for that. What's your perspective on the whole fintechs eating the world brands becoming banks and brand, every brand becoming a payments company and all that kind of stuff. It seems like it seems like you're perfectly positioned for it from my perspective in a way that isn't just a bunch of hype. I think there's a lot of like the like card issuance and things like that. It's a sexy thing. Some somehow card issuance is sexier than what you're doing, but what you're doing actually it it has this it has a sense of stability and lack of churn, I would think, where you're just gonna keep getting better and better and better at your core competency versus Card, card issuance is still just kind of card issuance. And at a certain point, it's about economics, not technology. Anyway, I'm not even quite sure the question I'm asking here, but it's just like I'm, the juxtaposition of these two things think, is interesting. I think the whole embedded fintech or fintech is eating the world thing or whatever. I think what it's really what it's really saying to me is. Banking used to be done through branches and nobody wants that anymore. And so what is the equivalent of a branch? Well, the branch should be inside of the Uber app. Like the branch should be inside of the, yeah. you know, Gusto app, like things like that. So, um, you know, that obviously implies a whole bunch of different technologies. I mean, you know, um, uh, ATMs were like used to be, you know, that was like a cutting edge technology at some point, right? Like they were like all of a sudden you could not have to go into the branch. Like you could stay outside the branch and you could yeah. get, you could get cash at, you know, 2 a.m. or whatever, uh, because the branch is only open from whatever, nine to five right. with a three hour break, uh, for lunch. Yeah. But anyway, so, <laughs> so, you know, I think the, I think the, the, um, the that's what fintech is eating the world to me means is like all the stuff that you might want to get from uh, a bank it can be provided by other brands and it can be provided inside of the product experience uh and frankly i think at lending home we were early to that like we we part of the you know benefit that we got sort of is we got dumped into the reality of building one of these things pretty early we're doing you know mortgage wires over the internet in 2013 like that was kind of crazy at the time 
Um, yeah. You know, that, and speaking so, of anxiety, mortgage wires in 2013, just that, that, that sentence stresses me out. Yeah. But you know, what's really interesting, <laughs> about, but you know, what's really interesting about that? Like people had the same reaction to credit cards in like 2000, I don't know, five or something, right? Like, um, the, it used to be like, I think there's like the first phase of the internet commerce was all about credit cards. Yeah. And it was like, think about, think about the big successes in early internet like history or whatever, right? Like yeah. it's companies like Amazon, it's Netflix, it's Expedia. Guess what happens from a com- from a payment systems perspective? You look at it through that lens and it's just like, I have a web form and I have to accept a credit card. Like that's what those companies are doing. And so that was like really painful. And then in, in you know, circa 2005, 10, whatever, like you had a bunch of companies like Braintree, like Adyen, like Stripe, that started start getting built up, really focusing on providing that credit card infrastructure to enable a lot more companies to be able to do that. Um, but you move over and, and, and people used to be afraid of like, you know, they had like an extra credit card. They would put an extra credit card like number. That's like my Internet credit card. And it was different from your other credit card because you actually, you know, didn't trust the web. Uh, and maybe for good reason to some degree, right? Like at, yeah. at the time, there's a lot of immature, um, you know, infrastructure, immature kind of security practices, things like that. And so you fast forward to 2013 and your reaction to sending mortgage wires over the over the web is exactly right. But it's actually very similar to like the 1998 reaction to credit cards over the web. Um, and so I think there is in a way like this wave of infrastructure that we are building, uh, we're part of that. But there's like a wave of companies that are that are getting built up that are messing with industries like health insurance and like real estate and like investing and financial services and payroll and benefits and all these things that actually you don't do over credit card. Like they're, they're yeah. wire things. If you look at it from a payment uh, kind of systems perspective. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting, but I think there's a, some really interesting parallels there. Yeah. And I mean, parallels into the amount of stress that I feel when I move, like move an NFT from MetaMask to Coinbase or back and forth or, you know, or Coinbase totally. wallet, I should say. I mean, it's the overlap there is, is similar yeah. and the amount and of crypto. ETH that you lose. Yeah. No, and people say crypto is, is like, it's great because it's not reversible. And it's like, that doesn't sound great. Like if you double remit something, like that's bad. <laughs> like you want to be able to pull it back. You want to be able to have some sort of like, you know, approval flow. That's even more important if it's reversible. So yeah, like it's, um, you know, from a pure engineering perspective, that sounds great. From an ops perspective at like, you know, at like a big organization, that's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it's it, it, philosophically, it all sounds great philosophically and technologically. We're all like bucking on board. But as soon as you actually have to run it through a risk department or have a conversation about an enterprise, whoa, things change. Um, speaking about conversations with enterprises, I'm curious. So building all this technology, like really leaning into that. How did you start thinking about distribution? And obviously, you know, you had that you said first customer six months in kind of how did that progress? Like, how do you go from one to two, two to 10? What was that whole process and kind of what's been the the strategy, I guess, as you've gone through that? Yeah, we thought a lot about it from that element of trust. Like, how do we get people to trust us with something that is pretty core and critical and like not it's not core to their product, <laughs> but it's core to their operations being being well run. And yeah. so um, Rachel Pike, who was the first person to join us, and she kind of has built out the growth team, um, really kind of started kind of join us around month six. And she really focused on how do we build out the brand, the content, a lot of the stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've read some of our journal articles, things like that. Yep. Uh, some of the thinking behind that was a little bit like, hey, well, if you keep kind of Googling around things, like let's say you're a developer building this thing or, or PM at some company and you're trying to fig- figure out how to like do this. If, if like you Google a bunch of things and you keep finding us and we sort of sound friendly and authoritative and it sounds like we kind of know what we're talking about, like maybe it's worth giving a shot and actually using the product. <laughs> um, and so uh, some of it was kind of leading with category creation, like within payment ops is its own category. It's actually very different from like the bank portal or like accounting or like some of these other kind of very well established, um, you know, set pieces of software that people use. And the reality is a lot of times people are using G sheets and Excel to like track what happened and then something, some failure happens and they're digging in the kind of G sheet from last Tuesday being like, okay, wait, did, did we send this? Did we not send this? Like what happened? Um, and, you know, I think that's something where trying to connect it all into a piece, a single kind of elegant piece of software is like, 
it's it's I think if you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's not something that people have seen. And so you have to kind of uh, create the category, if you will, and show them uh, this is possible and you don't have to kind of uh, you can kind of combine a lot of these different activities into one. Um, all the way to the point where you can do continuous accounting, I mean, which I think is really powerful. Like we're not, you know, there yet in the full kind of vision of what we can do. But if you think about the marketing stack and you go to um, Google Analytics and you see how many people checked out your website, that's a real time thing. Like there's no mm-hmm. month close for like who checked out my emails. Like you can see the read rates immediately. And the reason why you can is because there's a lot of instrumentation around it. So if we're building instrumentation around every single payment, if we really do that for every single payment in enterprise, we can give an instant 10K for the whole company. And you know that <clears throat> that's a long-term kind of thing to, to try to get to. But what's really interesting about that is what happens once it exists. I mean, who mm-hmm. has access to it, right? Like the, you know, the the SEC and others are, you know, saying like you need to be able to, uh, as a public company, like sort of release this quarterly statement. Well, guess what? It takes like a quarter to put it together. <laughs> like yeah. it's actually, it's it's not just a purely kind of legalistic thing. It's actually like hard to to kind of get it together. So if you really had as kind of a real time dashboard of the state of your business, um, there's a lot of I think good things that would come from that. But like, how do you do that when you have uh, and especially if you're a big enterprise, like you're across banks, across geographies, across yeah. business lines, it gets really, really hairy. So, um, but anyway, to answer kind of to go back to your original question. So we had our first customer, our second customer. So our first customer was uh, somebody who was a friend of mine. I'd known uh, Will Young and Sana before, and that was kind of the initial initial connection. Um, our second uh customer was somebody who just kind of saw our announcement and wanted to kind of play with new YC software and uh, reached out. It was a, a home flipping business. And uh, so kind of knew a little bit about lending home and kind of enough yeah. things got put together. That was like really excited to try it out. Um, so it was kind of a cold inbound outreach. Uh, our That's third cool. customer was actually a, a referral from a, from a bank. Um, so it was somebody who was a little bit bigger of a company trying to figure out how to solve this. Um, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had just seen Sana go live, and they were just like, "You should talk to these guys." Um, wow! And so that is three you know, very validating data points. Like that's that's three different things that are very three different ways of them finding you that made right. must must have felt very good to have that amount of diversity in in those early days. Yeah, and by the way, that was across health healthcare, insurance, and real estate. Yeah. So like already kind of across different industries. But yeah, I mean, so I think um, to some degree for us, what we felt like was, yeah, validation is, is probably the right word. Like this really is a problem and people really are looking for like solutions for it. And, um, and then kind of the focus for us was how do we kind of just obsess with about the few customers that we have and like make them super happy and build out the kind of the right UIs and the right kind of things that they needed. Um, and not try to grow like super, super quickly for the sake of growth when you don't really know if your product is actually right. And I think there's this element of, you know, go, go kind of go slow to go fast. That's really important in good, in good software. Um, cause you just have to have seen, and by the way, like guess how many, guess how many, how long it takes you to like have observe a month close. Like it takes a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> takes, like you can't, you can't do this 12 times this month. Like you have to do this. Like, you know, it takes, it takes, it takes a little while to like, it takes uh, a month see. to take a month. Yeah. It takes it. Yeah. Every month takes a month. That's uh, that's it one turns thing out. we learned. <laughs> yeah. We learned, we learned that about in treasury the hard way that every month is uh 28 to, you know, 31 days, but it, it takes a month. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but, but so anyway, so I think that like, we did not have uh, a very high kind of customer, like, even when we raised our series a, um, and we didn't have a very high customer count. I think we're probably like 10 or 11 customers, but there's a lot of like customer love. And there was a lot of like, we, you could see how this would actually go into other, other um, industries, other companies, like bigger companies, all that sort of thing. That's so funny. You just said we raised a series A with 10 or 11 customers and that wasn't very many customers. You have not been paying attention to very many recent (laughs) series A's, have you? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) 10 or 11 is a shit ton, dude. That's a, that's a large amount of, that's a large amount of customers for a series A these days, especially in payment infrastructure. It's a huge amount. Um, Anyways. That's enough shit talking on that specific subject. Uh, I'm curious though, uh, listening to you talk, how much time do bankers 
Describe the UX a little bit better for me. Um, do, do bankers spend a good amount of time in the modern treasury system? Do you just kind of plug into the bank? Like how how does that whole situation work? Because I know definitely they're like just reading the use cases and everything. All of the brands that you work with are like, we spend all this time in the modern treasury back end. Like this is where we live. Is that true for bankers too? Uh not so much. I mean, uh, really what we're connecting to the bank systems are, is more kind of in the in the over SFTP or API or what have okay. that they, that they yeah. have. Um, so what we what ends up happening is, you know, every bank has some sort of interface that they have. And sometimes they have multiple systems and we have to kind of figure out like which one's the right one uh, for, for our customers. But um, we kind of built to that. Um, and then, you know, once it's up and running... The banker, I mean, one of the benefits, I think, for the relationship manager at the bank is that a company in the in the previous world, sort of, you'd have to ask this company to go build something for, you know, a, a matter a matter of a few months. And then, of course, there's an internal conversation that happens in the company where the CFO, let's say, wants to go, like, enable something new or the product team or whatever. But the CTO has to kind of allocate resources. And so it's like, you know, you start waiting around, like, well, when are, when do we have five engineers to like focus on this for like three to six months? Um, and the answer is not all, not always immediately. Um, And so there's kind of an element of, from a, from a, from a bank perspective, I think one of the biggest values of what modern treasury can bring is just like turn, turn kind of prospects into like happy paying customers faster. Like, you know, and if it takes two weeks instead of six months, I mean, not only is your NPS score going to be a lot higher because as a bank, as a banker, you're not sort of asking somebody to go do something that's relatively painful sometimes. Uh, but it's also just like you start getting transactions faster, like a core core kind of fee income is is important uh, to the bank. So, um, so yeah, so from a UI perspective, the bankers themselves aren't necessarily using modern treasuries UI per se. Like there's definitely versions of the world where that would make sense and you know we can go explore that sort of but where where i think we're really bringing value is just you have a prospect they want to do a thing how do you how do they do that thing yeah like now <laughs> yeah how do you facilitate it quickly it makes sense well and, and the other thing is like all the exceptions and all the failures and all the things that happen yeah. like how do they not become just like giant kind of customer service you know, <laughs> clusters, because we have actually seen that before. Like we have seen the edge case, we have tooling around it and it's not disruptive to the company, but you know, by proxy, it's also not disruptive to the bank. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, when you were talking earlier about, you know, the, the 18 different Google sheets that connected through the, the five other APIs on the back end of the front end of the, this, the, like, it's just innately going to break no matter what <laughs> at some point during, you know, that month. Um, that is what I saw happening across a number of community banks that were starting to especially support neobanks. And I was seeing like, you know, these chief innovation officers being brought in and like 90% of the time it was just about building the correct data layer and then somehow turning that data layer into visualization. Like they should have just been like power BI officers or something like that because it didn't really have shit to do with innovation. It was just like, it was almost like CYA of how do we visualize this in a way that the CEO and the CFO will be able to understand quickly and like report to regulators. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about how, what you're doing could, you know, once you solve the and gigantic I, I would, problem in front of you, be that eventually. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go so far as to say, I think we should. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that if you think about just the whole world of compliance, like it's all about context, like the way you ca- catch kind of fraud and the way you, you find out that something is kind of off is you tie systems together and you, you yep. see correlations. Like yep. That's literally the only way you can do this. And so anything that makes those kind of connections easier is going to be super valuable. And I think that it's to your point, it's going to be valuable to the compliance officer, the bank, to the CIO, the bank, to the regulators. It's not, it's not just, I mean, it's very important for the CFO of the company that we're serving, yeah. but, um, but even in the context of the conversation or the, the kind of relationship between the bank and the company, exactly. we can provide like a, a layer of uh, sort of, Hey, like we can kind of, I don't want to, say like sort of look over your shoulder, but it's more like, you know, we can enforce this policy across a certain set of clients. We can put a green check mark next to every counterparty that have KYC, been KYC, things like that. And I think that's a really important element of value that we can provide for, um, you know, for the banking world and by proxy for the companies that are, that are, you know, the banks then feel more comfortable serving. Yeah. I mean, real, real time data transparency would be an absolute groundbreaking 
thing in, in this world cool. and, and um, with regular with regulators too man i mean i think regulators they have the biggest like talk about a month taking a month for them you know a year takes a year and then they come in and they look at the stack of papers and they're like wait you had you added how many partners and they're doing what and like even if it's all totally above board and like well handled on the compliance side and you know all the contracts are in order regulators still just get nervous finding out that you're growing that fast in a new direction you know it's wild and it's real work like looking kind of totally and figuring it out sort of yeah for sure it's yeah anyways i'm just i've become more and more of a supervisory technology nerd now that i'm getting into the money 2020 world i'm like understanding more of how the world fits together and well, Anyways, it's a if you wanna, slippery if you slope. Come, come work, come, come build a supervisory product. Uh, you know, you know, you know where to find us. <laughs> <laughs> Noted, my friend. Noted. Um, so let's let's get into actually the first way that I heard about you all, which was on acquired. Well, maybe it's not the first way that I heard about you, but it was the way that I went from. A company called Modern Treasury, which anytime that the word treasury is involved, honestly, I'm like, I can't keep them straight. And then I saw you guys on there. I was like, oh, this is absolutely fascinating. I know who this is. And then it all clicked and came together. How did that come about? And yeah, tell us the acquired story. Yeah, uh, I um, the acquired story was really we met Dave uh, at some point, kind of living in San Francisco through the startup world as we were kind of building, building, I think. We're probably out of YC. Um, I'd start listening to the to the Acquired podcast. It's absolutely wonderful. You should all go listen to it. Um, but I uh, and they had their first. We we were in this WeWork on Sixth and Market, and there was like an auditorium there, and they had their very first get together in person for the Venmo episode, which was like topical for us, and it was in our building, and I like Acquired, and you know like and so we're just like let's just go kind of literally like go from the fourth floor to the second floor and let's let's take on this level of efforts to actually you know participate in this uh, yeah. in this get together and uh, met Ben for the first time got you know got to be kind of part of a little bit of that community and, and so on um, and then you know one of the things that kind of really um, you know elevated that relationship if you will was we when COVID happened we were uh, you know we did some of these kind of zoom happy hours. I'm sure you've been on some that are not very exciting. Yeah, no, they're, kind of they're, terrible. Awkward. <laughs> they're terrible. terrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. And so um, we started, <laughs> I started as on a whim. I was just like, you know, we need, we need some free entertainment or something. We need to start inviting people to this that will tell us about interesting things. And so at first, I think, um, I, I think Daniel Vogel, who is uh, a good friend uh, and like a seed investor and uh, the co-founder of a company called Bitso, which is a math kind of a massive uh, company in, in Latin America, um, in the kind of crypto kind of exchange and yeah. wallet world. Uh, I think he just joined randomly and he just told us about, you know, crypto in Latin America, like sounds crazy. Like it will be fun to have somebody kind of tell us about it, uh, kind of off the record. No, 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 nothing sort of, and that took on life of its own. So now we have uh, a weekly tradition called the coffee break. Uh, and instead of having zoom happy hour, we have a guest and we have a guest that is a founder of a company that we're, we might be working with and we get to hear what they're building. And so then the feature request that they ask us like a month later kind of fits into the lattice of like, Oh, I know what you're trying to build and why it matters to you. And the whole company gets to hear that and see the customer and things like that. We get investors, we get just people we find interesting. And so one of the, one of the, one of the people that we found interesting, um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the uh, guests <laughs> was, was Ben and David. And I asked them, Hey, can we, uh, can you guys just like spend 45 minutes on a zoom with us? off the record and they're like let's put on the record and let's actually release it as a special lp episode uh and we i mean our mode is sort of learning like my favorite thing about modern treasures we get to go into all these companies and just like learn all about how their business works and it's kind of this yeah. business school nerd like on steroids yeah he's just like loves that so we really wanted to hear the quiet story and they're like nobody's ever like, you know, <laughs> nobody's ever asked. Like, we, we're, we're the interviewers and we're like, no, 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 no. You guys are going to answer questions. Like you literally just going to sit here and answer questions that we, that we ask you. And so anyway, this was like, how to COVID everybody's at home. Everybody like needed, you know, something exciting sort of, and they joined the coffee break and you can go listen to that podcast. It was super fun to have our team interview them about how acquired came to be. Um, but, you know, but I think that, that, you know, we built a special kind of relationship from that. As Ben and David would say, I will link to the show in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's awesome, man. It's it's cool to see the way that you guys have 
I don't know. There's, there's something about your brand and I'm curious about your perspective on this that doesn't feel like it's marketing to me while it's marketing to me. It's an interesting thing. Like the way that you found the relationship with acquired the way that, I mean, honestly though, you found the relationship and I don't know how I'm, Matt Marcus has kind of been the main person involved, but V as well, uh, value summit and just getting not ever really asking for anything. Like, but getting a lot, I think is something you guys have figured out. Like you just give and you kind of show up in a way that allows folks to ask you questions and you're just friendly. And then by accident, you seem to get business. Am I like, is, am I nuts in my oversimplification of this or are there true ROI goals that I'm missing? Like, it seems too, too human. I think you just described the way Silicon Valley got built. I mean, not like not to fair, be wax poetic, but you talk about yeah. Y Combinator and how Y Combinator got created. And you talk about, you know, I don't know, like even, you know, Benchmark and Sequoia and so on. Like, I mean, yeah. in the beginning, yeah. they were all about empowering. It's all about empowering companies and, and founders and, and kind of early. I mean, I think one of the things that's super cool to me is just now when people join and, you know, they're like join Modern Treasury and they're kind of like, Come, they're coming into this built-in um, sort of base of knowledge that we like worked really hard to create and like they shouldn't really think about anymore. <laughs> like this is yeah. a problem that, he, you know, I, I, this is maybe like a very uh, um, uh, lofty way of saying it, but it's kind of like that's what technology is. We like humanity solves a problem and then it's like not a problem anymore. Like we can we can move things up hills now. We have wheels like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not as much of a, of a problem sort of. And so, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's. Part of it is, again, like we just have this somewhat unreasonable maybe, but like just like, hey, I think this thing is going to be like a real problem for a long time and nobody's been trying to solve it. So let's go solve it. And if we solve it uh, and it's valuable, um, then, you know, we'll we'll get paid for it and uh, things will work out. But there's sort of this techno optimism that I think is maybe just like we grew up with. But, um, you know, I think that it's it's core to how like the best companies get built. Like I don't think the best companies get built by saying, you know, there, here's my, here's my TAM and here's how I get 70% of it. Like, that's not, that's not I, I, the whole concept of TAM, I think is just kind of funny to me. Like, I think it's an insult to your product team to define a TAM because you're basically saying like, oh, you're, wow, that's you know, interesting. If you're Sony, like, is your TAM like radio transistors or like, might you invent a PlayStation, <laughs> you know, um, stuff like that. So anyway, uh, I think like if you look at, if you go back to the origins of early kind of companies in the first kind of couple of years and you do that exercise that I think a lot of times people try to do in sort of the venture context of saying, what's a total addressable market for this widget? Um, yeah. that's very rarely really relevant. I think, I mean, how many computers were there when Microsoft was started and yet, you know, Bill Gates's mission was, you know, a computer in every desk in every home. Well, that's not, I mean, that TAM was like 10 computers probably in 1975, uh, you know? So it's sort of, yeah. I think we think of it as this problem isn't going away. It doesn't matter if we move to, you know, the digital dollar and, and crypto and things like that. Like you're still gonna have to know what's happening in your business. You're still gonna have to handle like approvals. You're still gonna have to know, you know, how customer service answers questions about things. So it's like the format changes, but the problem doesn't go away. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that ethos. Um, there's, there's companies that are from your geography that go raise that series B normally is when I start to experience this. And then the, the, the marketing folks come in, not the, you know, growth folks. And all of a sudden you get into, you're trying to get somebody involved in a community without even asking them to pay. And then they're like, well, give me an email list of everyone involved and how can I email them 16 times? It's just like, just shut the fuck up and show up and add value and you will get something out of it. So I really appreciate it. And I think it's, I think it's a lot better to be the content of the email than the, you know, yeah, like, totally sponsor emails. And I'm not saying that we don't do that. No, yeah, do yeah. That anything, but, but you want to create something meaningful for the world so that puts you in the content of the, of the newsletter. <laughs> Not, even, but you know. e yeah, but even your sponsorships are content marketing. Like even your, your sponsorships on acquired are still content marketing. It's not like they're reading an app. I mean, I guess maybe in weird situations they are, but they're like talking to one of your users, right? right? Or like they're taught they're, they're explaining the product in a way that is not, doesn't make me want to vomit, which is unique. <laughs> so it's really yeah. cool. And I value it a lot. I just, it's a, lot, it's a, high, it's a high bar. Sounds like we cleared that bar. <laughs> it, it's, yes. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, that's a fair point. It's a fair point.
All right, man. So final question for you is, well, kind of twofold, but it's one and a half fold. So one is what can the For Fintech State community do to help you? Uh, you know, are you hiring? Are there new pieces of the product you're thinking about that you need specific expertise on? Whatever it might be, or, you know, customers are always great, whatever comes up in mind for you. And then the second piece is if folks do want to help, how do they get in touch with you to do so? Yeah, I mean, we are growing. We're uh, a little over 100 people now. Um, we are continuing to hire in product and engineering and sales, customer success, marketing. If you if this conversation about marketing that just just occurred uh, <laughs> resonates with you, uh, come talk to us about uh, roles in product marketing or growth marketing or content or all that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think the other obvious uh, kind of ways to test out our product. I mean, you can go sign up on the sandbox. You can contact us to uh, to get a demo. You can tell us about problems that you might have that we may not be solving today. But as I just described, we think of our total addressable market as problems that we don't solve today also. And so we can go solve them. <laughs> uh, but we'll be very happy to uh, to engage with anyone in the community. Um, and um, yeah, we're at moderntreasury.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's my last name, Dadimov, D-A-D-I-O-M-O-V. And yeah, um, Feel free to DM me or or reach out to anyone at MT. We'll we're we're try to be friendly. <laughs> well, you've you've pulled that off. Not only do you try, but you are. Um, and I highly recommend the Twitter follow, not just for the sake of the DM, but for the sake of the fucking guffaws that I get at like 11 p.m. reading your your hot takes. So I highly recommend that to listeners. I'll link to everything else in the show notes. Dimitri, thank you, my friend. I really appreciate the time. I've learned a lot and just had fun. So thank you. Thanks for joining the conversation, my friends. I hope you enjoyed our time with Dimitri at Modern Treasury. Jump into those show notes to learn more and find out everything you can about Dimitri. And again, welcome to NeuroID. Don't forget to go to neuroid.com backslash FFS. Repeat, neuroid.com backslash FFS. Repeat, neuroid.com backslash FFS. I actually wrote repeat and I'm reading it. Here we are. Driving it home, folks. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our emails that might go out eventually, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy. Keep your head high, and I love you all. That's all there is to it. We'll see you next week.